This week on Unforgotten. Charles Wayne Wilkinson III was born in Mississippi on Sunday, September 21, 1997. AJ, a vibrant 22-year-old with a natural gift for athletics, music, and art, went missing under suspicious circumstances in July of 2020. A lot of people, he touched lives. You know, he touched their lives. He helped people. In 2020, a discernible shift occurred in CJ's demeanor, catching the attention of both friends and family. You know, at least that that ones that live out there, quite a few of them knew who he was. And I don't know why they didn't ask him on that road, what was his name? Where did he live? He could have been broke. A landowner who stumbled upon the heartbreaking discovery, CJ's remains. I just, I just really like to know what happened to my friend. Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. And any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. And now for episode 31, part one, CJ Wilkinson. Hey guys, and welcome back. Unfortunately, our amazing co-host Stormy had a family emergency and couldn't join us this week. But no worries, everything is fine, and she'll be back in action next week. Before we dive into the episode details, let's address a couple of quick housekeeping items. The upcoming multi-part episode will be the last one of the year, followed by our December Remembrances on December 14th, and then we'll be wrapping up Season 1. During the break, we'll be researching cases for the upcoming season and handling behind-the-scenes ACCA-related matters, including staying active on social media. Unforgotten will resume its regular schedule on January 25th, so mark your calendars for the return of our compelling mysteries. This week, we are bringing you another story close to our hearts. To set the scene, we are taking a journey through the heart of Northwest Alabama, where history, nature, and vibrant communities converge. Welcome to Marion County, a place rich in American heritage, even down to its name, which is in honor of Brigadier General Francis Marion, a Revolutionary War hero from South Carolina, who was also known as the Swamp Fox. Established in 1818, Marion County's roots delve deep, emerging from land acquired through the Treaty of 1816 with the Chickasaw Indians, originally encompassing not only its current boundaries, but also parts of neighboring Alabama counties and even extending into Mississippi, Marion County has evolved into a distinctive and captivating locale. 
Located in the East Gulf Coastal Plain, Marion is a gem bordered by Mississippi to the west, Franklin County to the north, Winston and Walker Counties to the east, and Fayette and Lamar Counties to the south. Home to just over 29,000 residents per the 2020 census, Marion County is not just a place on the map, but a thriving community with stories to tell. In its early years, agriculture fueled the county, echoing the broader trends across Alabama. However, as the 20th century unfolded, the allure of its thick forests drew in the timber industry, ushering in a new era of growth and development. A bustling corridor awaits along US 78, known as Corridor X, stretching southwest of Hamilton and connecting Memphis, Tennessee, and Birmingham. It's here where much of Marion County's business sector thrives. Yet Marion isn't just about commerce. It's a haven for nature enthusiasts. The county is adorned with numerous tributaries of the Tom Bigby and Tennessee Rivers, providing the perfect backdrop for outdoor adventures. The Sam R. Murphy Wildlife Management Area beckons with its over 25,000 acres of game hunting, while the Upper Bear Creek Reservoir and Marion County Public Fishing Lake offer plenty of opportunities for boating, canoeing, kayaking, fishing, and bird watching. For those who want to linger for a while, Twin Forks Park near Bear Creek Reservoir invites you to bask in the serenity of nature, offering picnicking and camping facilities. Embedded throughout the community are numerous buildings listed on both the National and Alabama Registers of Historic Places, including Norris Hardware, built in 1905 in Boston. That's right, Boston. Originally christened Boston, after the local Bostick family, Brilliant emerged in the late 19th century, cradled by the opening of a coal mine courtesy of Aldridge Mining Company. This mine, a cornerstone of the town's identity, garnered distinction when it changed hands to a Birmingham-based group of investors, leading to the renaming of the mine as the Brilliant Coal Mine Company, due to the exceptionally low contaminants in its coal. The tale of Boston is short-lived, as it had to alter its name during the establishment of a post office, finding itself in conflict with another Alabama municipality. The result? The birth of Brilliant, a moniker paying homage to the very mine that played a pivotal role in the town's economic and cultural evolution. Incorporated in 1927, Brilliant reincorporated in 1957, expanding its boundaries to include the remainder of Boston. Today, with a population just over a thousand, Brilliant stands as a testament to the endurance of small-town America, where the echoes of the past reverberate through its streets. A touching chapter in Brilliant's recent history is marked by the closure of the Brilliant Mine in the 50s. However, the town carries on the tradition with an annual coal fest held in May, a celebration that honors its coal mining roots and unites the community through arts, crafts, live music, and delectable food. Amidst the festivities, you may encounter individuals like the mother and family of today's case, passionately selling t-shirts and advocating for justice for her son, raising awareness about mental health, and fundraising for an art scholarship in his memory. The Coal Fest becomes a heartfelt platform that not only celebrates the town's past, but also advocates for meaningful causes in the present. Yet, amid the festivities and harmonies of live music, Brilliant carries a heavy heart. The family of C.J. Wilkinson, in particular, bears the weight of a tragic mystery. C.J., a vibrant 22-year-old with a natural gift for athletics, 
music, and art went missing under suspicious circumstances in July of 2020, casting a somber shadow over the town. His untimely demise, discovered months later, leaves Brilliant with a bittersweet blend of celebration and remembrances. We're, I mean, we're, we're both from Brilliant. Um, it, it's a small town, you know, it knows everybody. truly embrace the uniqueness of this situation, you need to understand who CJ was as a person. The heartfelt story shared by his family and friends shed light not just on the joy he brought, but also on the profound impact his loss has had on all of those around him. The picture painted by those closest to CJ makes him feel like a cherished extension of our own family. I just, you know, I'm just thinking of him when he's, he'd either be on his phone, he'd go smiling or something. You always tell if he's in a good mood because that smile, you know, it just brightened up the room and stuff. Yeah, he might have been about six. And uh, him or I was running through the house, and I think my mother had been in the hallway, and he had to stop. He slid down, and the little dog, you know, was after him. Every time they'd make a move, she'd go run after him anyway. And he'd slid down and fell, and he said, freaking, <laughs> for the first time I'd heard it. And I I really, I, I got tickled, but I couldn't let him hear me, you know, because I got tickled about it and stuff. And they was all laughing. Mama was laughing. <laughs> I was like, oh, my I'm sorry, Mama. I'm sorry, Mama. <laughs> CJ just wouldn't quit. He thought it was the most funniest thing. So I just remember how his laugh was, you know, CJ's laugh, his smile that Mom was talking about. I remember it like it was yesterday. He loved his mom, man, and he loved his grandmother. And he loved his family for sure. And he definitely loved his mom. I mean, it was to the point where I'm like, all right, CJ, you just need to move up here with me. And he's like, oh, I ain't going anywhere without mom. Well, the best thing about CJ was he, uh, he never liked fusing a room full of people that you really didn't know. You know, he, uh, he made you feel comfortable, you know, you know, like he really made you feel welcome. I couldn't imagine CJ getting it because, you know, he was just an all-around friendly guy. You know, you, you never had a problem with him. Like, I, I can't look back and recall, you know, one memory that sticks out more so than others. I mean, they were they were all unique. And, they, I mean, it just, you'd really have to know him to understand where I'm coming from. But, man, it was just every time you were around him, it was a unique, memorable experience, and I can't say one was any greater than another. Charles Wayne Wilkinson III was born in Mississippi on Sunday, September 21, 1997, to his father, Charles Wayne Jr., and mother, April Chafin. C.J. possessed a natural gift for both athleticism and arts. He played both football and baseball for Brilliant High School, where he graduated in 2016. Beyond the field, his talents extended into music and drawing. In 2013, he entered drawings into the 2013 4th Congressional District Art Competition and came in second in the state. It's also worth noting that the transition music played earlier was actually CJ playing the guitar. He went on to attend Bevel State Community College to earn his welding certificate, 
paving the way for his eventual career as a boilermaker welder at Miller's in Jefferson County. Beyond his affinity for sports and creative arts, CJ's interests were much broader and covered a variety of different topics, including history and politics. About anything, and this when uh, I was helping with the wedding, and he was supposed to go back to take his next test for the boilermakers, him and a friend of his, and um, he had passed his, and his friend had to go again take another test, and uh, he was telling me they was facing go take their drug test, go get their physical, and all that, and he says, "Well, mom, what do you think?" I said, and he's excited, you know, and I mean, and he was proud of it. And uh, I said, well, I said, I am. I said, but I'm scared too, CJ. <laughs> but he was just so proud of himself. He, he done so good at whatever. He set his mind too. Yeah, he was nine and um, his uncle played. And um, I'm sure he'd been around his other, his uncle and his friends playing and stuff. And I don't know if that inspired him, but I know he did like, uh, is it Slash on Guns N' Roses? Is that who that is? His uh, uncle had lived right beside his grandmother, and uh, they had internet, and his uncle had a guitar, so he'd learn them notes, and then he'd run back and get the guitar, <laughs> and he'd play, and then uh, Dwayne says, yeah, he's playing better than me, <laughs> but he was determined he was going to learn it. <laughs> playing the video games, he was really good at them as well, um, and mom was talking about it earlier at the very beginning. Um, you know, with him being so interested in politics and history. He was super into that. And, and remember dates. Oh, yeah. Okay. And but, but it's not just about knowing him. Like, I don't watch the news. So, because to me, it, it kind of makes me a little sad, you know, kind of a little depressing a little bit. And... You know, you never know if you're really getting the full truth, especially after what happened with CJ. They only aired his story once and they were done with it. And so I feel like, you know, you never get the full story. And that's why I don't like, I don't really watch the news that much. And so CJ was similar to where he wouldn't just watch whatever was popular or whatever was broadcasting. He would do his research on it. You know, he would really try to figure out the truth and and then he would tell us about it he would tell everybody he could that would listen to him you know because he listened to podcasts you know mom was mentioning that he listened to podcasts and you were saying yeah like this this would be something he would like <laughs> and listen to this mom listen to this if you really wanted to learn something and know something you would ask cj because he he knows like he, he just knew all <laughs> you know um, he was very informative on a lot of stuff. And even sometimes when you didn't want to know, he was going to tell you <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I think technology would have been his best. Yeah. Know. And I was <clears throat> saying earlier, he, he, cre he built his own computer, like uh, his own monitor and everything. I can't shoot. There's no way. DJ embodied love and kindness with a heart that knew no bounds. His genuine concern for others and a strong aversion to seeing anyone hurt defined his character. Marked by an easygoing demeanor, infectious smile, and knack for bringing joy through laughter, he effortlessly cultivated numerous friendships throughout his life. My name's James Lexington Corcoran, uh, 
everybody just calls me Leck. Me and CJ went to school together. He was three or four grades ahead of me in school. Uh, I met him when I was in the seventh grade. So spent a lot of time on the weekends hanging out. And uh, he actually was starting to teach me how to play guitar. So yeah, we played uh, we played baseball together one year, his senior year. And uh, so yeah, we just, we was really good friends, really good friends. He used to come over to the house, over here to my house and my grandma's. So yeah. CJ and I shared the same friends group. And over the course of about six months of me being back, you know, we got we got really close. He had the same interest in video games. We, you know, watched the same type of TV shows, listened to the same type of music. Um, it it really fun it really funded um, friendship that I will never replace. You know, a lot of us enjoy riding off road and stuff. And during that time, you know, I had a truck with room and. You know, CJ just had a little car, so most of the time he just piled up with me. You know, we were together pretty much every night of the week, you know, just riding dirt roads or riding trails. Hey, man, you know, you want to go ride? Check out this new band I heard. You know, it just, it it started the way a lot of friendships do, but it molded into, into a special friendship, you know, rather quickly. You know, being, uh, our music tastes are different than most, so... You know, it, having somebody to talk to about music really, really separates you. You know, I would, I would have to say though, out of out of all of my memories with CJ, my favorite thing in the world was sitting down and hearing him pick on the guitar. I mean, he he could listen to anything for just a little while, and then he'd pick it right up and start strumming along with it. You know, and it, it wasn't just you know the music, his, his drawing. He was an extremely talented artist. And his drawings were, were crazy, especially for somebody his age that wasn't in school for it, and you know. And it's like when him and his sister would play, or they'd get in a fight or something other, and uh, you know, he wouldn't want me to spank Mariah <laughs> or anything. But yeah, she. <laughs> it was just you know that's how caring he was. You know, he didn't want to see nobody else get hurt. I guess fondest memories, of course, we have. You know, I have a lot of memories of CJ and us being kids and and uh, playing and all that. But I guess the most recent, most fondest memory and the one I cherish the most is that the last time I saw him. Um, and not just because it was the last time, but because we really got to spend time together. You know, he was... Um, 22 I guess yeah at the time and I was I guess I was 23 24 25 26 and you know I'd already moved out and you know do my own thing and stuff and so you know we were young adults trying to figure it out so we really didn't see each other too much anymore you know went from living together seeing each other all the time and then we didn't really see each other much anymore so um it was around July 4th um and we were celebrating and we were, me and my husband and um, uh, Joshua, stepson, was, we were all there and visiting. Um, and I guess CJ went to his room, like, like he does the majority of the time he does. He'll go into his room and either he'll play his guitar, he'll draw, or he will play his video games. And at this instance, he was playing his video game and... 
And normally I'm not into that. Normally I don't really play the video games. I don't, I like card games. Uh, that's more of my style, the board games, the old style. <laughs> um, I don't really have many games on my phone even. Um, and I normally don't watch him play. Because like I said, it's not something that normally interests me. But he always wants me to. He always wanted me to come watch him play his video games. And he was like that with most of them. You know, when our grandmother was alive and stuff, he he wanted her to watch him all the time. And she would. She'd sit there and she'd watch him and always thought, wow, you know, you got, you must be either into it or you got some patience. Not real sure. Uh, <laughs> but she did. She enjoyed her time with him and everything. And she'd watch him play all the time. Well, finally, you know, this time he asked me if, um, you know, I wanted to watch him play and just, it was a different feeling this time. It was more of a, yeah, I want to watch you play. And, um, so I went in there and I watched him play and then I played and eventually I'd, I'd been in there long enough that here comes, you know, my husband, he's watching him play and we're just like having a good time. You know, we're laughing, we're cutting up, we're watching him make all these crazy moves and, you know, on the video game. And we had gotten to the point where CJ had just looked at us and was like, you know, y'all can play if you want to, but I'm going to bed. <laughs> you know? He's kicking us out, you know, <laughs> but we were intrigued for some reason. And I don't know. I think it really wasn't the video game itself. It was just seeing him and really getting to visit with him more. Um, and, um, but yeah, he pretty much kicked us out at that point. And, um, so that was the fondest memory. The, the, that's the one I cherish the most is just, as I remember how I felt, I remember what we were doing, you know, laughing and everything. CJ was the kind of friend that everyone needs. In the middle of life's most trying moments, he was a pillar of unwavering support. On the darker days, when the world felt overwhelmingly heavy, CJ was the beam of light piercing through the darkest clouds. In every heartfelt conversation where CJ's name surfaces, the undeniable reality reverberates. The world was unquestionably brighter and better with him in it. CJ was a good-hearted kid. Always had a smile on his face. Even on his bad days, he had a smile somewhere. It didn't take much to get it out of him, and he could. But watching the Braves last night, trying to think of what to say, and all I could think about was CJ and his pitching. That would make kids sit down in the batter's box, duck like they were hit, and coaches going ballistic. And then CJ would look over and just give that little grin that you knew he was laughing on the inside real hard. He, he was always trying to please people, make people happy. There was, there was no being born around CJ. He saw, if he saw somebody down and depressed, you know, he'd, he'd talk a little smack. Oh, you can't be, you can't be down and out, little sissy, you know, and then, then go to joking around. He'd do his best to get somebody mad and fired up as, as he could, and then he'd go to joking. He, he had such a unique personality. I, I, I don't, I don't think he could ever be matched. Not in a million years. No, to me, you know, I think he would have been uh, a great catch, I guess you can say. You know, somebody that had such a big heart. He was an attractive young man, and he 
had so many talents and I would ju I just could see him I always pictured it you know when even when we were younger and stuff what would our lives be like of course it shouldn't have been anywhere like it is now that's not at all what it should have been but you know uh, I always pictured you know when we married and had children and stuff like that and our children playing together so that makes me super sad in 2020, a discernible shift occurred in CJ's demeanor, catching the attention of both friends and family. The once familiar circle of companions saw a notable absence as CJ began hanging out in a more precarious social circle, some of whom April states had potential gang affiliations. During his high school days, CJ suffered a football-related back injury. That injury returned while assisting friends in relocating a porch. To help manage the pain while he recovered, CJ was prescribed pain medication, which April fears may have been a gateway to more serious drugs like meth. At the end of July of 2020, CJ confided in his mother about his struggle with drugs and expressed a strong desire to break the addiction. This revelation perplexed friends and family, as CJ had consistently been a staunch advocate against drug use. His steadfast opposition stemmed from a deeply personal tragedy. His father's extensive drug use led to liver disease, and ultimately, his death. Well, I, I mean, you know, as far as the other stuff, um, he wasn't on it very long at all because I had seen him. I'd seen him at a gas station, you know, maybe just a few days before, and I had just started noticing a little bit of change in him. There, there was probably about a month in between him going missing and my last point of contact with him. And it really wasn't physical appearance. He was just, it was the way he was talking and acting. I, I, I worked in a prison. I saw a lot of it. There, there's certain ways, certain movements and certain ways people talk when affected by it. And you, I mean, you, you can nail it on the head, you know, pretty much and all of that stuff. I mean, CJ was pretty loud-spoken against it. I'm not going to be another junkie. And it, it really bothers me the way that he went out. It yeah. really, really does, because I know that that wasn't CJ. CJ had actively assisted several friends in overcoming their addiction, guiding them to sobriety. His sister Mariah believes his efforts to help others might have inadvertently contributed to his own battle with addiction. He was on the drugs just by his confession. And I guess, you know, what, what mom had seen and Carrie had seen how he was acting. But, um, you know, it isn't like this. Drugs do not discriminate. It does not care what color you are. It does not care what family you're a part of, how rich you are, how poor you are, it does not matter because it is a, it's almost like a big business and it is, and they are easy, it is so easy. And we see that from CJ, it's so easy to get on this stuff because CJ was so against it all and he was helping his friends get off of it. He was trying his best to help them get off of it and then he just, it, it took over him and it's, it's not, it doesn't happen in one day. You don't have to be in a, and you know, some people think you, only people that are poor or only people that have 
these that are brought up in foster care maybe or don't have a good support system or many, many things that they think in, happens is why people get on drugs. But that's not the case here at all. CJ had a loving family, a loving mother and, and a great home life. And he was doing so well. The reason why he ended up in the situation is because he was helping his friends and the people he loved and cared for. And it just took him over eventually. And that can happen to anybody, anybody. He will, he's missed, obviously. He'll be missed by a lot of people, you know, a lot of people. He touched lives, you know, he touched their lives. He helped people. I mean, we, he, he has a friend that I, I didn't even know about until all this happened, that he actually helped be, get off of the drugs, and now he's like a preacher. And uh, I actually had a pain pill addiction at one time, and uh, I didn't do it in front of no one, anyone. I didn't want anybody to know. But I don't know. There was something about CJ, man. I felt comfortable. And uh, he was at my house one day, and I decided that I was going to do it in front of him. And he gave me this look that was so disappointing. And that's when I, that's, that's, that's when I stopped. That's actually when I, because he told me to stop. And uh, I didn't see CJ really for a, a while. Before he went missing, I actually, you know, I got back in church and I actually started dating well, who's now my wife. And uh, I don't know, I always thought, you know, who knows, maybe I can get CJ in church one day. Maybe I can repay the favor down the road. But uh, yeah. So yeah, he. Uh, I've actually stood in a church pew and I've gave that testimony about him helping about that about that day he was at my house. He, uh, yeah, sure have. He, uh, he's, he's one of the reasons I stopped. He's one of the reasons I stopped. In 2020, CJ was living with April and his stepfather, Carrie, and he had started working a couple of days a week with his uncle by late spring, early summer. Around that same time period, April began to notice subtle changes in CJ's demeanor, noting that he didn't quite seem like himself. On July 28th, CJ asked April where their vacuum was, mentioning that Tiffany, a girl he'd apparently been seeing, wanted to clean her car. April initially didn't think much of the request, but did take notice of the fact that the dishes from the previous night remained unwashed. Curious, she asked CJ about it, and he explained that he hadn't been home, opting to spend the evening with Tiffany instead. Following a shower, CJ returned visibly upset. He told April that Tiffany wouldn't be coming over, expressing skepticism about her explanation, saying her story's not right, and then stepped outside. Concerned, April followed him and discovered him sitting outside crying. In a true maternal gesture, April sat down with CJ, offering a comforting presence. It was during this heartfelt moment that CJ confided in April about his drug use. Despite April's initial assumption of marijuana, CJ revealed that financial constraints had led him to use meth and pain pills instead, as they were cheaper to obtain. Fearing April's reaction, CJ expressed concerns about being kicked out due to his addiction. April assured him that wasn't happening and made it clear he had their support in seeking the help he needed. Determined to conquer his demons and understanding the importance of taking ownership of his journey toward recovery, 
CJ remained steadfast in fighting his battle independently. When their conversation ended, CJ went inside to talk to Carrie, giving himself time to cool off and calm down. That night, April stayed with CJ until he fell asleep. Once he fell asleep, April and Carrie meticulously combed through their home in search of any concealed drugs. Their thorough search yielded no illicit substances. Satisfied that none were in the house, they went to bed. The next morning, on July 29th, April entered CJ's room to check on him and discuss work. Concerned about his emotional state and vulnerability, April made the decision to take the keys to CJ's car with her. With a scheduled work day alongside Shane, his uncle, April told CJ to either arrange for Shane to pick him up or to inform Shane he'd be unable to make it. Before heading to work herself, April diligently inspected CJ's car for any traces of hidden drugs. Finding none, she set off for her day, holding on to CJ's keys with the resolve to ensure his safety and well-being. Just after 8 a.m., April received a text from CJ asking, where's my keys? Busy with work, she didn't see the message right away. However, she responded to his text at lunch. At 11.38 a.m., April sent CJ a text. You all right? To which he responded, yeah. April let him know that Rhonda, his aunt, was unavailable to cut his hair, but would possibly be available the following day. A short time later, CJ sent her another text, WYA, text shorthand for asking someone, where are you at? But April didn't see it immediately. And when she eventually did, she was unsure of what it even meant. Around 3 p.m., April returned home from work only to discover CJ's absence. A quick survey of the house revealed signs of a hasty departure with items scattered about and left in disarray. Concerned, April searched the property and attempted to reach CJ via his cell phone, yet her calls went unanswered. Desperate for information, she contacted a friend of CJ's, who also happened to be her co-worker at Tiffin. That friend revealed that CJ had also texted him around 2.30 asking where he was. The friend conveyed that CJ seemed okay, at least to the extent one could discern from a text. CJ's failure to respond to phone calls from April immediately raised red flags. Mariah and her husband John, returning from vacation on either Friday or Saturday, discovered something unsettling on Facebook. Mariah's aunt had posted a message urging CJ to call his mom or something similar. While initially concerned, Mariah didn't dwell on it too much, but decided to call April to get more details. April initially hesitant, eventually disclosed the information about CJ's involvement with drugs. The sudden revelation left Mariah startled. While she worried for her brother, she hoped he was simply with friends, sobering up, and would return home soon. Rather than heading home, Mariah and John changed course and headed straight to April's. The three of them sat outside discussing the situation. In a bid to gather more information, they made online posts hoping that someone might come forward with details about CJ's whereabouts. Mariah, still holding on to the hope that he was getting sober somewhere, thought that he might be feeling embarrassed or hesitant to return. As they explored every avenue, talking to people who might have seen him, hearing from someone who mentioned he was trying to get off drugs and possibly with someone assisting in that process, 
they became increasingly desperate for information. They reached out to friends, checked hospitals, contacted jails, and even inquired at the psychiatric ward in Hamilton, all in the hope of finding CJ and ensuring his safety. They even attempted to obtain his Snapchats, phone records from AT&T, and any other available leads that might shed light on his whereabouts. The search was exhaustive, driven by a mixture of concern, uncertainty, and a fervent desire to ensure CJ's well-being amid the tumultuous situation. The search for CJ led them to a Chevron in Brilliant, where a cashier initially thought they might have seen him. However, after checking the Chevron for several days, it turned out to be a guy who just looked somewhat similar to CJ, and the cashier eventually confirmed through surveillance footage that it wasn't CJ that they saw. CJ's Uncle Shane reached out to law enforcement, contacting Billy Penley, who was a lieutenant at Marion County Sheriff's Office at the time, and Kevin Bryant, a Marion County Sheriff's Office deputy. The communication was challenging, marked by trust issues, but Shane insisted on making the call. April expressed frustration with Lieutenant Penley for not reaching out earlier, especially after he admitted he'd seen the Facebook posts about CJ's disappearance. Considering that many of the Marion County Sheriff's Office deputies had family and children that knew the Chaffins and CJ. Adding to the rising concerns and mounting frustrations, individuals reported witnessing CJ walking down County Road 36 and Calico Road on the day he went missing. This occurred during a typical scorching Alabama summer day, with temperatures soaring into the 90s. Despite the sweltering conditions, those who saw him refrained from approaching or offering assistance, leaving a lingering sense of unease in the air. The lack of intervention during such extreme weather only added to the complexity of the situation, deepening the mystery surrounding CJ's disappearance. Times up that way, and I come back from the Winfield way, and um, that's how I came home. I didn't go like going through Brilliant because they were doing road construction on the main road on 129. Because I thought, well, if anybody has seen him out there, if he had walked out that way, somebody would have seen him because they're doing road construction out there. And anybody had seen him on the main road, you know, at least that, that ones that live out there, quite a few of them knew who he was. And I don't know why they didn't ask him on that road, what was his name? Where did he live? He could have been broke down. You know, even though he told them, you know, he's going to the store, going to the dollar store, Dollar General, to get him Mountain Dew. Uh, I, don't, <clears throat> I, wanted, I, I was told he was offered a ride. Someone had a four-wheeler out there, and I don't, you know, I've heard different stories. On Tuesday evening, a comprehensive search of the area surrounding April and Carrie's home commenced, extending to the neighboring properties wooded areas, and nearby creeks. As April and Carrie scoured the vicinity near one of those creeks, Rhonda focused her efforts along the road. It wasn't long before their combined efforts led to a discovery that abruptly shifted the tone of the search, elevating it into a more urgent and critical matter. The nature of this discovery introduced a sense of immediacy, heightening the concern for CJ's well-being and intensifying the ongoing search efforts. Well, the big search was um, 
that Wednesday morning because uh, when we got out there uh, on the road and stuff, um, we went, we was looking for CJ <clears throat> and um, we went out to this other property. Of course, these people had called us. I don't know if they may have seen us on our camera or he, my husband knows the, his brother knows the people that owns that property out there. And uh, we was out there searching, you know, maybe he was out there, you know, nobody lives out there. They just go out there to hunt and, you know, and whenever they, I guess they want to get away from their home home <laughs> out there in the country part, you know, it's pretty nice. I mean, uh, they got a little lake out there too, you know, a little pond. And uh, we was out there searching and stuff and we come up on the, we just went on down the road and stuff and went down that creek and um, was out there searching, you know, out to the area where he was supposed to have been seen at. And my husband fell down in that uh, little creek thing. I mean, he just went, all I seen his head, and he just went down. And I was worried about him and stuff. I was trying to get him up. And uh, we got back to the Jeep, and we got to call, because Rhonda had called me, his aunt, and said that they had found his boots and phone on Center Church Road. I said, where? I said, we're out here on Center Church Road. And... She says out from more to the end of the road, not the end of the road, but going out that way up on the ditch or something by a tree. And uh, when I got there, um, his friends was out there and uh, his phone, um, his boots, the way they were uh, set up there up on the hill and stuff. And it's like I was looking at him. I was like, you know, it's like. We couldn't touch anything, and how I wanted to pick up that phone, you know, I wanted to know, and uh, I didn't. We just kept going, walking back, and they was hollering for him on one side of the road. His friends were, and we were hollering on the back side of the road, and my, you know, and my husband asked him, you know, he's coming back down, because Billy had called me, or was trying to call me. He had come up, and he said, I've been trying to get in touch with you. I said, I've been out here. I didn't, I must not have had the service, you know. I said, and Rhonda must have got through. I said, but we've been out here looking. And um, they was telling him how his phone, how they picked up his phone. Um, when his friend had drove by, and he seen the reflection off his phone. I don't know. CJ didn't. CJ didn't go anywhere without a cell phone charged. He was a very prepared person. Uh, number two, CJ never took his boots off. We could go over, we could go over to a buddy's house, and if CJ was sleeping, CJ, CJ was sleeping in his boots. We all, we all picked on him a lot. You know, man, you you take showers and those things too. He <laughs> need to breathe, brother. There was, there was a lot in that period of time from us finding the boots until he was finally found. It raised a lot of red flags to me. We, we looked around for a couple hours. We all departed. I went home. I hadn't been home long, and uh, his aunt called me and said that she had found CJ's shirt. So I raced back out there. I was like, all right, well, you know, we, we found a shirt. We know which direction he went. Well, let's, let's go find him. So I get out there. Um, we've got the shirt. We're walking around. We're finding coins flipped upside down. This on. This is completely opposite of the side of the property that he was found on. I came in from work one day, and my grand my grandmother knew him. You know, she you know CJ used to come over here to the house, and uh, 
my grandmother had heard he went missing and at first I really didn't, you know, I thought, oh, he, you know, he, no, that ain't, that ain't like CJ. CJ was always with somebody, you know, he, he loved hanging out with his friends. I was like, no, something, you know, he ain't, he's all right. And, uh, well, a couple more days go by and my grandma, she's like, you know, he's, you know, I reckon he's really missing. And I, I just couldn't, it couldn't, couldn't get registered in my head that, you know, I thought maybe he, uh, I was told that he went to the beach or something like that. I heard somebody saw him at the beach and, uh, I couldn't believe it. And then they really brought uh, a search team, a search team out here. And, uh, yeah, I just, I just really like to know what happened to my friend. You know, he, uh, I, I just, I don't think it's like, I don't think it was like CJ to really go missing, you know? And I wouldn't know of him to have any problems with anybody, you know? That's one thing I've always thought of, you know? For 10 agonizing weeks, CJ's family and friends held on to hope, organizing numerous searches and pleading for any leads. Despite their relentless efforts, it was a landowner who stumbled upon the heartbreaking discovery, CJ's remains. Join us next week as we dive further into the weeks leading up to the discovery, the investigation after the discovery, and where his case stands today. If you have any information related to the disappearance and death of CJ Wilkinson, please contact the Marion County Sheriff's Office at 205-921-4733 or submit a tip on their website. You can also contact us via email or through our social media pages. You can also submit an anonymous tip on our website. Uh, you know, I wish, I wish the whole world could have known it. It would have had quite an impact on many people's lives. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases.
Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.